Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11, I'm going to look at just one verse this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. And let's just stand. We're going to read our verse right away. Here Paul writes Timothy, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a great verse. A verse that gives so much direction to us as your people. Uh, Lord, may we be challenged to run after these things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Paul is he's starting to close his letter here at 1 Timothy in the 6th chapter. And he begins that closing with a mighty challenge to Timothy. But thou, O man of God. Uh, what a title. I mean, what a contrast to the previous characters Paul had been saying, watch out for, don't be like these guys, and don't uh, follow after them. But Timothy, he's to be the man of God. One of the great Old Testament titles that we see. Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses was called the man of God. Samuel, Elijah, David carried the same title and the prophets. Sometimes we think of Timothy, we think of him as being maybe timid, kind of a push around, maybe even wimpy. But this title really dispels that aspect. He is the man of God. And Paul calls him that. And he's going to be the last one called the man of God in God's word. Timothy. He's to be the man of God. Notice Paul says, by fleeing those things listed before that can destroy our Christianity. And we've looked at those. I'm not going to go over those. He's to be the man of God by following these great virtues in verse 11. And if you notice, Paul says to Timothy, follow after these things. Uh, that word follow means to run swiftly in order to catch some person or thing. To run after, to pursue. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you need to run after these things. You need to follow these things. You need to pursue them. And as God's people, we're to run after them too. So let's take a look at, look at these six items listed here by Paul. Uh, Paul says, run after righteousness. Uh, Wiersbe calls it personal integrity. William Barclay says, It is the most comprehensive of the virtues. The righteous man is he who does his duty to God and to his fellow man. So we notice there's, there's an order here to these graces. Uh, this one is first. We need to follow after righteousness. That needs to come first. Without that, the others kind of fall apart. When we look at Jesus, Jesus displayed absolute righteousness. That's what he is. He's righteous. Uh, one of the things that Paul prayed for the believers at Philippi, he prayed for them that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. 
Isn't that interesting? That they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come from Jesus Christ. That's where you get them. To the Ephesian believers, Paul listed the armor of God. And if you remember in that list of armor in Ephesians 6, he tells them to put on the breastplate of righteousness. No Roman soldier would go out into battle without his breastplate. He put that thing on. I mean, it was just a sleeveless piece of armor. Uh, sometimes it was a thick leather piece and had either wood or metal uh, sewed onto it, placed on it. But that would protect his heart, his lungs, his vital organs. It's kind of like wearing a bulletproof vest. Man, our soldiers today, they, they wear uh, that, that type of armor. And spiritually, we're to wrap ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. It protects us from the temptations of the world. It thwarts the attacks of Satan. And everyone who believes in Christ is given Christ's righteousness that delivers us from hell. The righteousness here in Timothy 6.11 is a practical righteousness of a life that has lived in obedience to God's word. That builds, that's that breastplate of righteousness we can put on. And we need that. See, Paul is telling us God supplies the armor, but we have to supply the willingness of putting it on, living moment by moment for Jesus. That gives us the breastplate of righteousness. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, follow after righteousness. Then he tells Timothy, run after godliness. Closely related to righteousness. Righteousness deals with character. Godliness deals with conduct. When we look at Jesus, he exhibited showed a, a flawless godliness. In John 8, Jesus uh, says, I do always those things that please the Father. That was his conduct. Pleasing the Father, his godliness. Barclay says, Godliness is a reverence of a man who never ceases to be aware that all life is lived in the presence of God. That's what it is. It's living life, every aspect of it, that we are in God's presence. That's what godliness has that attitude. And godliness will take deep roots when we live with that kind of awareness that every day, every moment we go through, we are in God's presence. He's always there. Jacob, it's interesting, after stealing his brother Esau's birthright and blessing, yeah, he had to leave home. Kind of got ran, ran out. But I want you to see a story in Genesis 28. Turn your Bibles back to Genesis 28. Jacob's going to have an unusual experience. Genesis 28, verse 10. 
Here the Bible tells us that Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took of the stones of that place and put them for his pillow and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest to thee, will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places, whether thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee, till I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. Then look at verse 16. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Isn't that interesting? Here he thought he was out in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere. And then God showed him he is present. He is there. And we need to have a Jacob experience. We need to realize that wherever we are, God is present. He's there walking with us. He's God with us. A number of years ago, we did a, what was called uh, spiritual adventure. Uh, David Maines designed those, and, and uh, boy, I wish they still had those around. That was some good stuff. But he went out of business, so they don't do it anymore. But we had one where we did as a church, seeing the unseen Christ. Uh, it was just a marvelous uh, time we spent uh, 50 days seeing the unseen Christ. Just being aware of God's presence. And, and some of the things... Uh, that were pointed out uh, to be aware of. and We just need to get spiritual tuning. Because a lot of times we're just, the you know, world just drowns out stuff. But here's some things to watch out for. Any obvious answer to prayer. That's God's presence. Now, we should recognize that one. That, that, that's obvious, isn't it? Any obvious answer to prayer. Any unexpected evidence of his care. God just provides you, maybe something big, maybe something little. But if it's unexpected and, and it just shows God's care, reveals God's presence. Any unusual linkage or timing. Isn't that interesting how things happen at the right time? That's God's presence. Any help to do his work in the world. That's God's presence. We need to realize when we're reading our Bible, we're meeting a person, Jesus Christ. And he's present. We need to walk daily with a sense of wonder. Looking for God's hand. Godliness 
becomes deeper when we walk with God's presence on our heart all through the day. And that's what godliness is. Conduct that has that awareness of God's presence. And then we need to run after faith. Dr. MacArthur says faith is uh, simply confident trust in God for everything. It involves loyalty to the Lord. Unwavering confidence in who he is. So faith here in Timothy has that aspect of faithfulness. It means that through all the changes of life, no matter what happens, we keep our confident trust in who God is and we stay loyal to him. It's trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning not on our own understanding and just staying with that. In Hebrews 11, when we look at the heroes of faith, we find men and women who put their heart of trust into God. And they stayed loyal. I mean, just look at some of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11. Noah, building an ark for 120 years. He had faith. God told him to do that, and he did it. And he stayed with it. He's loyal. Abraham, going out to a new land. Didn't even know where it was. God said, you just go. I'll show you later. And he did. He stayed loyal. Moses leading God's people out of Egypt for over 40 years. Joshua taking down the walls of Jericho. He stayed loyal. Rahab the harlot. She cast all she had upon the Lord and God's people. She hid those, by her face, she hid those two spies. And by faith, her family was saved. And she'll become part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Who would have thought that? Rahab. And then Daniel. Faithful from his youth, he stayed loyal to God. And at, and at the end of his book, we find Daniel, an old man, in the lion's den, still faithful, loyal to God. All the way through. So run after faith. A loyal faith that stays with the Lord, no matter what. And then Paul tells Timothy, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, then love, run after love. Boy, that's an essential one. It's, it's the heart of the gospel. I like what the Apostle John writes. If you just turn ahead to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. Well, that was a rich study this morning in 1 John 5 in, in Bible study this morning. That was good stuff. But here's the Apostle that Jesus loved. He loved, really loved the Apostle John. And notice what John writes in 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. 
Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Of course, uh, the word John uses, the word Paul uses in Timothy is agape. It's a love that is of the will. It's a choice. We choose to love. It is unrestricted. It is unrestrained. It is all-encompassing for God, for, for other believers, and even for non-Christians. Remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he gave the answer, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. That's the first commandment. And then out of that, he said, the second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. None other commandment is greater than these. And they're both in love. What does a healthy church look like? A healthy church has people that love God supremely. And they love each other. That's a healthy church. I mean, if you don't have people loving God, loving each other, it doesn't matter what you do. Ain't going to amount to nothing. Uh, you just go back to First Tim or First Corinthians. Let's go turn back. First Corinthians, thirteen. First Corinthians thirteen. Notice what Paul says. He says, "Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels." and have not charity or love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, love, it profiteth me nothing. So if we don't have love, man, it doesn't matter what we do. We've got to have love for God. Love for God's people. It's a visible evidence we are his disciples. Remember Jesus told those disciples at the Last Supper, he said, I, I give you a new commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. And then he went on and said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. It's the identifying mark. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, follow, run after love. 
Got to have that. Then Paul says we need to run after patience. We live in an impatient time. I mean, we expect results right now. We get kind of upset things don't happen on time or quick enough. Well, I'm guilty of that as anybody. I ordered a buck knife and they sent me notification that uh, it, it's on its way, it's ready. Well, next thing I know, that thing got lost. And it ended up in Hodgkins, Illinois. <laughs> and it took, from, from the buck factory, eight miles away. It took 10 days to get to my house. <laughs> I was not a happy camper, ask my wife. Well. I wasn't very patient. Well, patience. Follow after it. Doesn't mean sitting with folded hands, letting the experience of life roll over us. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about victorious patience, endurance, sticking to it when the going is tough. Courage that continues in hard places, remaining under in spite of circumstances. It's interesting, the Apostle John in Revelation, that first chapter, he says, I, John, who also am your brother and, and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? He describes Jesus, the patience of of Jesus Christ. John, he, he knew Jesus so well. And he gives that quality to Jesus. The patience of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was patient. He waited before the foundation of the world to come to earth and to complete our salvation. He waited 30 years before he began his public ministry fulfilling his duties as a son. He's been waiting for 2,000 years to return. He was patient with his disciples when they were slow of faith. Patient with us, too. And he remained under the cross and conquered sin and death. That's patience. Patience is waiting on God. It's, a, uh, it's not passive. It's a very active experience as we wait on God. We just with it, keep doing the things we've been instructed to do and waiting for God to act. He will. Just be patient and stay with it. And then... Paul tells Timothy, run after meekness. Now, lots of translations will put that word as gentleness. But as Barclay points out, he says this word is really untranslatable. Now, to our thinking, meekness kind of sounds like a, a, a wimpy word, doesn't it? 
Well, he's just kind of a little meek little guy. Meek little dog. Uh, we think of, you know, some kind of little timid person. But this word really speaks of strength and power that is under control. Jesus, in his invitation in Matthew 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek. I'll tell you what. There's nothing wimpy about Jesus Christ. And yet he says, I am meek. <coughs> he holds his almighty power in check. And when we look at the Gospels, we see the meekness of Christ in his baptism by John the Baptist. He submits as baptized by John. In the temptation, he refuses to use his power and do a miracle, as Satan asked. Instead, he just quotes scripture, the word of God. We see his meekness in the way he deals with people who are suffering. We see his meekness in the calm, firm manner as he debates religious leaders. But most of all, we see his meekness at his arrest and trial. When the chief priests and the Judas and the soldiers come for Jesus, he submits to let them Take him. I am he. Man, they all fall down. He could have walked away from them. But in meekness, he submitted. We see his meekness in his silence to his accusers. We see his meekness when he takes a brutal scourging that would kill most people. And we see his meekness as he's being nailed to the cross. And we see his meekness as he's hanging on the cross and those people are coming by and say, if you're the Christ, why don't you come off that cross and show us and save yourself. And in meekness, he stays on it till the end. Death. That's meekness. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Meekness. We're going to just have a time of invitation. We're going to bring Peter and Sarah back up. Jesus paid it all. And one of the things nice is that we don't have to be perfect to come before God. Jesus does that for us. But we can come right to his altar now 
and his throne and get right through Christ. We can do that. And maybe during this time of invitation, uh, we might need to do that. Might just need to call on the Lord. Lord, I need to follow after these things. I need to be righteous. I need to be godly. Lord, I need to follow after faith and love, patience, and meekness. You come as we sing. Let's stand. Jesus paid it all.